The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 12th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right. Good morning, church family. It is indeed Easter Sunday morning, and that means if there was to be a highest day on the Christian calendar, this would be it. In fact, in the history of the Christian church, Easter is more than a day. It's, it's actually been a season of, of time. It's a season marked by celebration, by joy, by hope-filled joy, because Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And we as Christians, we get the privilege of serving and following a living Savior. So as we get started this morning, I just put all of our cards out on the table at Redemption Hill, we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ literally and physically was resurrected from the dead. And because of that, we believe his resurrection changes everything. On an Easter Sunday morning like this, when we're not under social distancing guidelines, Easter Sunday worship is often the the largest and most attended worship gathering of the year. The the second maybe is, is what? Do you know what the second most attended week is? It's usually Mother's Day. In fact, this morning, there there might be many of you joining us online this morning simply because it's Easter. And for you, it seems like it's just the right thing to do on a Sunday morning like this. And if that's you, I want you to know we're glad that you're joining us. We're glad that you're with us this morning. We're glad to have you. My prayer for you this morning is that whether you've joined us this Easter morning for the first time or whether this is the first time in a long time, you've joined a church for an Easter Sunday morning worship service. My prayer for you is that you would know this morning why Easter is so special to us. And hopefully from this morning on, it will become special to you as well. And church family, I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you as well. It's, it's easy for us, especially during seasons like this of distancing and quarantine. It's easy for us to, to get distracted by all the, the trappings of the Easter season and the holiday. And even if we're honest, begin to lose heart a little bit and not being able to gather together like we normally would, to, to be able to put together those Easter egg hunts with friends and family like we would like to do, to, to be able to do all those things that, that make up this celebration, this day in our mind. We can lose heart, and in losing heart, we can forget why Easter itself is so special for us. And so this morning, I want you to know that my prayer for you is the same as my prayer for all of us, that God would deepen our gratitude this morning, that you and I may more fully enjoy his grace to us in Jesus on a daily basis, that we might be reminded as well this morning of why Easter is to be so particularly special to us. So this morning as we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 18, we're, we're going to spend our time exploring a, a passage in Luke 18 that Jesus told, it's a story that Jesus told that often doesn't get directly associated with Easter. But I pray as we read it together this morning that we'll come to see that this story may actually be one of the best places in the Bible to help us begin to approach the good news of Easter in a new way. So if you've got your Bibles open, Luke chapter 18, we'll start in verse 9. Jesus is speaking and he says, Luke tells us that he told a parable to some 
who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, a parable is simply a story that is told to impart some particular truth. And when Jesus is telling these parables, these stories, he's seeking to impart to his listeners a spiritual truth. And often when Jesus tells parables, some of them are difficult to understand at first, but not this one. He's super clear on this one. Right here out of the gate, Luke tells us that Jesus has a target audience in mind for the story he's about to tell. We don't have to wonder who he's talking to. Luke says that Jesus is talking to folks who who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What does he actually mean by that? Well, to understand what he means by that so we can understand who he's talking to, we've got to first understand and be clear on what it means to be righteous. You know, when you and I talk about being righteous today and we use that word in our common everyday language, it often carries a negative tone in our mind. But literally, to to be righteous, righteous itself literally means to have right standing with or to be in right standing with. One writer in talking about the particular use of righteous in in a general sense, in a general way, said that righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. That's what it is. Righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. So if you think about all those high school seniors right now who have been filling out college applications and attaching with those college applications the history of their grades, their transcripts, all the record of their community service, all the record of their activities, all the things that they've been doing to present to this college. They are presenting their performance record with the hope that their performance record will allow them to be received and accepted by that university. When they get that acceptance letter in the mail, that letter is saying that on the basis of your performance and your record, we are receiving you. We are accepting you. You are in right standing with us. The same thing goes with jobs. That's what a resume is. You are presenting to a company the record of your performance that you believe validates you to be accepted, worthy of the job being offered. Righteousness simply means to be in right standing with. And so when Jesus is talking about righteousness, When we're thinking about what it is to be righteous from a spiritual perspective, Jesus is talking about being in right standing with God. So Luke is very clear at the beginning of this story that Jesus is talking to people who trust that they have right standing with God based on a performance record of their own. Quite literally, this is what being self-righteous means. It means that I in myself have a record of performance that validates me as worthy of acceptance before God. So this morning, if you're you're here and you're listening to this story, and if you're honest with yourself, you, you would agree that maybe you have a similar thought in your own mind that you too have a right standing with God because of your validating performance record in life. And when you compare yourself to those around you and you think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've got a record that I think will validate me before God. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 says you're not alone in that thought. In fact, most people in the world think that when it comes to having right standing before God, that God grades all of us on a curve. 
See, most of us, if we're honest, we, we think that God grades our standing before him on a curve. So if we look around and we find ourselves on, on the right side of that bell curve, we, we look around at the world and we begin to compare ourselves to what we see. If we see ourselves over here on the right side of the curve, then we think we're okay. We think with, before God we're, we're sitting pretty. But, but here's the problem with this kind of self-righteousness. God's standard for righteousness is not about how we compare with other people. God's standard for righteousness is based on how we compare with him. And so as we get ready to hear the story that Jesus is going to tell to a group of people who in the group there are many who believe that in themselves they have what is necessary to stand right before God, I want you to know that Jesus is about to tell this story and the story is ultimately about how we truly can have right standing with God. And that has everything to do with a hope-filled joy of Easter, but we'll get there in just a few minutes. So let's pick up the story. Verse 10. We know who he's talking to. We know what he's ultimately gonna be talking about. Now, let's hear the story. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And so we've got to read this story like a human. With the people that Jesus was speaking to, the, the minute that he started this story and he said that there were two men, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they went up to the temple to pray, all of a sudden, a, a whole symphony of, of sounds and, and memories and, and, and images would begin to catalog in people's minds as they listened. They were familiar with the temple. They were familiar with going to the temple to pray. They were familiar with Pharisees. They were familiar with tax collectors. So you can imagine that if, if we weren't under social distancing guidelines and, and I were to say that this afternoon, I'm going to take my family to the Monument Avenue Easter Parade. The majority of you in your mind would already see the problems with trying to park somewhere in the fan. The problem with trying to, to get through the crowd to a particular block where you know there's going to be a food vendor you want to get to. All the sounds and all the smells, all the parades of hats and animals and dogs and all that goes in with being at that parade would come into your mind as soon as I said that's where I was going. So for these people, in their mind, they're already seeing a, a Pharisee and they're already seeing a tax collector. And in their mind, they can see these two men making their way up the broad steps outside of the temple complex, passing through the gates into the temple court area. They can see these two men, both Israelites, passing the, the low wall that separated as far as Gentiles could go into the temple area. They see them passing through that area, seeing them passing through the inner court. They know the sounds, they know the hustle, they know the busyness. They can see all that's happening in their mind that Jesus is setting up at the beginning of this story. They'd see both the Pharisee and the tax collector, both men with jobs, both men being religious, going to the temple to pray. But ultimately, this story is about the differences between them through and through. Jesus said in verse 11, the Pharisee, he enters into the temple court area to pray, and he's there, and he's standing by himself. Now you see, before he would enter into the temple itself, he would have to go through a, a series of cleansing rituals, a, of bathing rituals outside in, in a mikvah, in a bath that was there to, to, to be able to facilitate these cleansing rituals. And as soon as he comes out of that cleansing area and begins to make his way into the temple, if he were to touch anybody on his way in to pray, he would then become unclean. 
So here is this Pharisee, and everybody can picture him in their minds. He's in the court to pray, and he's standing away from everybody else because he doesn't want to risk becoming unclean. And to, to feel it and to see it like, like Jesus' hearers would have, we, we've got to understand that in their day, these men, these Pharisees, they, they had the perfect storm of, of celebrity, of wealth, of power, of respect. I mean, the kind of respect and the kind of celebrity we give to people in our day mixed with the kind of honor and power that politicians have in our day and mix it with a whole bunch of religious fervor, that was the Pharisees. And so it's going to be no surprise to us that he's going to seem very thankful for who he is. The Pharisee standing by himself, he, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Did you, did you hear his prayer? His prayer is one part contempt and, and one part self-congratulation. In fact, five times in his prayer, he uses I. And as he opens up his mouth and lifts up his hands and his eyes towards heaven, he immediately begins to compare himself to others and exalt himself to God. I imagine the people hearing Jesus tell the story can see him there in all of his religious garb, all dressed up, standing off to the side, arms raised, eyes open. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like all these other men around me, especially that guy, the tax man. We'll learn in just a minute, he indeed was a man that was unjust. He did extort his own people. He did betray his own people as he began to work for the Roman government. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. I'm not like him. See, here's another problem here with this self-righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It, It becomes the perfect fertilizer for contempt in our heart. You see, the better that you and I become in our own eyes, the more, t- more temptation there is in our heart for pride. And when that begins to happen, becoming critical of other people for particular things gets really easy. You don't think so? Well, let's take it out of the spiritual realm. Have any of you ever gone through the process of losing a significant amount of weight? Uh, how do you feel on the other side of that? How, how tempted in your heart are you on the other side of that to look at other people around you and in your mind decide what they need to do and then look at what you think they're not doing and then begin to look down on them for not doing what you did and ending up like you? What about when you look around and you begin to determine that other people don't work quite as hard as you? Maybe you've saved a significant amount of money and you've set aside a lot of money for contingencies and and insurance and a savings plan and you're debt-free and you look around at other people and begin to look down upon them and have contempt for them for not responding like you. If we're not careful, it's, it's very easy for us in our hearts to begin praying, God, I thank you so much. I'm, I'm not like them. 
self-righteousness can become the perfect fertilizer for contempt in our heart. This Pharisee says, I'm so happy I'm not like these men. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. God's people were, were, it was laid out in his word that they were to fast 12 times a year, but this guy, he goes twice a week. And God had laid out particular tithes, one-tenth of particular harvest that God's people would have. This guy gives one-tenth of everything, including his personal garden. What is he doing? In his prayer, he's presenting to God his validating record. I work harder. Thank you, God, I'm not like these people. William Plummer, as he looked at this passage and began to write, he, he wrote that the Pharisee glances in the direction of God but contemplates himself. Did you hear that? The Pharisee glances in the direction of God but he contemplates himself. I wonder if we're willing to be honest with ourselves this Easter morning if Plummer just described your story. I was at a conference a couple of years ago where I heard a pastor say, what if your biggest spiritual problem is the thing that you like about yourself the most? What if your biggest spiritual problem is the thing you like about yourself the most? On the outside, this Pharisee is very satisfied in his activity. He's busy, he's moral, he's respected, yet as we'll see on the inside, his soul is in great danger. He's trusting in himself that he is righteous. And he's not alone in that. Friends, self-righteousness is at the heart of every philosophy and every religion in the world apart from Christianity. And Jesus is about to make the difference clear. To do it, he introduces the second character in the story, the tax man. And I know it says tax collector, but I'm a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, and he has this amazing blues track called Tax Man, and all I can hear in my head when I read tax collector is tax man, so that's why I keep saying it. But if there was a scale in Jesus' day from, from the shiniest person in the culture to the slimiest person in the culture... We've got a representation of both, the Pharisee on the shiny side and the tax man on the slimy side. You see, back in Jesus' day, here's what would happen. Rome would auction off the rights in all the territories that they occupied. They would auction off the rights to other people to buy for the right to collect taxes in that area. So this tax collector, he had won the bidding war from Rome for the right to collect taxes from his own people in Judea, in Israel. And what he would do is he would pay Rome the percentage that they required, but he would take more than that from his people. So a tax collector would literally extort his own people to collect taxes for Rome, but to make a lot of money for himself. He indeed was unjust. He, he was an extortioner. He was a betrayer of his own people. He was working with the full authority of the occupying Roman government to extort money from his own people. If there was a slimiest on the scale in Jesus' day, this man would be it. He is different from the Pharisee in 
every way imaginable. And in the most important way, it becomes clear in what Jesus says next. Verse 13, but the tax collector, he, he comes in and he's standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. Six words. No comparison. No commending himself to God. Just confession. I am the sinner. In fact, in the original language, in the original Greek there, there's a definite article. I am the sinner. The only person he is concerned with in that moment is himself before God. This tax man is beginning to see himself rightly before the Lord. That's why he's standing far off. The Pharisee was over here standing far off because he didn't want to take the risk of becoming unclean by being near other people. This tax man is standing far off because he knows he's unclean. Because he knows this about himself. And because he knows he's unclean, in shame, he's not even lifting up his eyes to heaven. Why? Because he knows, just like the Pharisee does, that God's holiness makes no place for sin. That our sin is a personal affront to God's holiness and a violation of his law. Both men know from God's word that guilty sinners cannot stand in a right place before a holy God. Their sin has to be dealt with and the payment for their sin must be equal to the debt is owed. So this tax man seeing himself rightly before God in the moment there as he lifts up his voice does the only thing that he can do. He cries out for mercy. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And here's one of the things that's so beautiful about this story. Jesus uses a very uncommon word for mercy in his day. There was a more common word for mercy that's used throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, and it means something very similar to the way you and I talk about mercy today. To receive mercy from someone is to not to receive from them what we deserve. That's how we think about the common uses of mercy, and that's true. But Jesus used a very different word here. The word that Jesus used here has at the root of it this idea of atonement. God, will you make atonement for me? Will you make payment for my debt? God, will you offer a sacrifice that is sufficient to pay the debt for my sin and remove your just wrath from me? The word that Jesus uses here that we translate merciful is the word propitiation. It's a big theological word, but Jesus uses it so it's important. This sinner is praying, God, will you provide the necessary sacrifice to pay the debt for my sin and to remove your just wrath for me? I, I have nothing that I can offer that you should accept me. I'm not asking you to overlook my sin. I'm not asking you to minimize my sin. The only hope I have is that you would atone for me, that you would pay my debt. This is what he is crying. 
he is crying out for God to provide a righteousness for him. He recognizes that he has nothing in himself to provide for God that would satisfy the debt that his sin has built up. The Pharisee is trusting in his validating performance record to be able to stand right before God. This man realizes that there is no way he could ever have such a record because of the debt of his sin, and he is crying out to God to make payment for him, to provide for him a necessary righteousness. Friends, this is the only reasonable response from a heart that has come to terms with what it is to stand before a holy God. We realize the right standing that we need is something that God has to accomplish for us. Because like this tax man, we realize that we can't do it. Do you see what Jesus is beginning to say in the story? This Pharisee, he he represents some who feel like they have no need for God to provide a righteousness for them. And this tax man, he's one who knows that without God's help, without God providing a righteousness for him, he is without hope. Friends, this morning, you and I need to realize that we are one or the other. Jesus would tell these parables to illustrate something for his listeners, that they would begin to see something for themselves. Friends, you and I this morning are one of these men or the other. You either trust in yourself to provide a righteousness for yourself before God, a record of performance that validates you before God, or you lean wholly on the mercy and grace of God to provide that necessary righteousness for you. As Jesus would go on in the story, he would say in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax man, he went down to his house, he left church justified. He left church having been declared Righteous. That's what justified means. He left having been declared righteous, in right standing before God. Not the other. Rather than the Pharisee. The tax man, he he cried out to God to provide an atoning sacrifice for him that would satisfy the just anger of God against his sin and provide for him a righteousness before the Lord. And Jesus said that man went home justified. The Pharisee and all of his morality, all of his obedience, all of his upstanding behavior, he didn't leave justified. He left church in a dangerous situation. My friends, you've got to understand, this would have been absolutely shocking to those listening to Jesus. Jesus to be justified, to be declared righteous before God in right standing with God, just like the tax man. It starts by realizing that you can't do anything to make yourself righteous before God, that you must rest wholly on the grace of God to provide for you a validating performance on your behalf that satisfies his just anger for sin. So what does it all have to do with Easter? Did I forget it was Easter Sunday? Well, I'm glad that you asked. 
So you need to realize that Jesus told this story to those that were listening to him as he was making his way to Jerusalem where he would offer himself on the cross. Jesus would make his way into Jerusalem where he would die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin. On the cross, the anger of God for our sin, Jesus would take. On the cross, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, Jesus would satisfy. John says in 1 John 4.10 that in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There it is. God did indeed make a way to satisfy his justice, to pay the penalty our sin deserves so that we could have a righteousness required to stand right before him. And he did it through his son. The wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice or the holiness of God so that by his grace, through faith in Jesus, you and I can have right standing with God. John Murray, the great theologian, said that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. God would provide in his son the one telling the story to those that would hear the very sacrifice necessary to stand right before him. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter three. Romans is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome and the man who compiled the gospel reading, Luke, Luke the doctor who compiled the gospel we're in, he and Paul were traveling companions. So You shouldn't be surprised to find a similar understanding in Luke's writing. In Romans chapter three, Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law requiring what's necessary to stand right before God through your obedience, what God requires. A righteousness of God, a right standing with God has been made known apart from your best effort. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, the Pharisee in the story, the tax man in the story, you listening to me, me standing here talking to you, we all fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And how did Jesus redeem us? Well, look at what Paul says. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. God put his own son forward as a wrath-removing sacrifice. Our sins were placed on him. Our guilt was placed on him. Our shame was placed on him. He who knew no sin, Paul would later say to the church in Corinth, God made sin in our place so that by his grace through faith in him, we, we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness, Paul says, is to be received here by faith. That right there is the way to have right standing with God, the very thing that Jesus is talking about. 
God has provided a perfect righteousness and he offers it to us and by it we are accepted. We are forgiven. We are adopted into the family of God. We are indwelt and empowered by God's very spirit. And we are promised to be in his presence for all of eternity. But here's the thing. How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sins was a sufficient sacrifice to pay the price our sins deserved? How do we know that Jesus' propitiating sacrifice was sufficient? Easter Sunday morning, God received Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin and validated his sacrifice by raising him from the tomb three days later, defeating the enslaving power of sin and Satan itself and death itself. You see, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if, if Jesus had not been resurrected from the tomb, then our debt isn't paid. Then his propitiating sacrifice, the very thing this tax man is crying out for, it hasn't occurred. It means we still stand before God not in right standing and requiring to present our own validating record of performance to him to be accepted by him. If he was still dead, we are in a bad way. But Easter Sunday morning is the validation that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. See, Easter all of a sudden gets transformed from just another day that we go to church because it seems like the right thing to do. It gets transformed to the center of our hope and joy when you realize that you're the tax man in the story and that your only hope to be made right with God is to cry out for his mercy and believe with your whole heart that he has provided the atoning sacrifice you need and guaranteed its sufficiency by raising his son from the dead. The question on Easter Sunday morning is, will you receive it? Will you receive it by faith? As Jesus begins to bring his story to a close in verse 14, he says, Everyone who exalts himself, those who want to walk away like the Pharisee, self-righteous, trusting in their own record of performance to validate themselves before the Lord, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, who knows that standing before a holy and just God, he has nothing in himself to offer yet in his humility receives God's grace by faith. All who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, on this Easter Sunday morning, will, will you turn the computer off in just a minute and walk away like the tax man? Justified, made right before God, having repented of your sinful self-righteousness and received by faith the grace of God and the perfect righteousness of his son? Or will you turn off the computer in just a minute and walk away in your pride, like the Pharisee, convinced that you're enough, that in you there's enough? Friends, have you seen yourself rightly yet? 
Are you willing to let go of your self-righteousness? Friends, your self-righteousness is one of the most deadly toxins for your soul. It will trick your heart into believing that you need no help from God. Friends, will you turn from your self-righteousness? Will you turn from believing that you have in yourself a record of performance validating you before God sufficient to pay the price for your sin? Will you turn from your self-righteousness and receive by faith the perfect righteousness that God gives to you by his son? Friends, I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. And let me say this, if, if you're joining us this morning and and you have a question about Christianity, or, or maybe you have a question uh, about the sermon, or, or maybe you just have questions about Redemption Hill. You, you should see on your screen somewhere some, some links, and, and if you hit one of those links a couple minutes after I'm done, one of our pastors will be there on an online call, and, and we're ready. We're, we're ready to talk to you, ready to pray for you. Friends, are, are you going to receive? Are you willing to receive this morning? the grace of God to you and the perfect righteousness of his son that he offers by faith in Jesus. Let me pray for us this Easter. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have seen fit to to ransom our lives, to save us guilty sinners from the eternal separation from you that we deserve. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to offer your son as our sacrifice, but you did. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you have purchased us by your son's blood. We pray, Lord, that you would do in our hearts the work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit and you would provide for us the necessary humility to see ourselves rightly, to see our need for you, that we might know what it means to be justified before the living and holy God, that we might celebrate and enjoy all that you have done for us in your Son. We ask this Easter Sunday morning that you would cultivate this very thing in our hearts, even even in the midst of a crisis all around us, that you would cultivate in our hearts a a season of hope-filled joy because of your son. We ask this morning that you would do this in Jesus' name for his glory and our deepest joy. Friends, Christ Jesus, our Lord, is risen. He's alive. His sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted by God. This is the best of news. Church family, I love you. May you go in the peace and the joy of a resurrected Savior. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other messages, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.